If you would open your Bibles to Luke chapter 4, we'll begin in Luke and then we'll move to Isaiah. We are in the midst, near the end actually, of a study of the book of Isaiah. We will finish the book of Isaiah, Lord willing, next week. But I'm just going to start this morning in Luke chapter 4 because this passage is intimately connected to where we'll be this morning in Isaiah 61 and 62. Um, as you turn there, what's the last piece of really good news that you received? Think about the last time that you were given news that was really good, that was a, maybe a reversal of some situation. It was something more than you expected. It, things weren't as bad as you thought. You, you got something that was encouraging. What, what makes for good news? It, it's an outcome, produces something that's maybe more than we hope for. It's truthful, right? It's not an exaggeration. We don't live on just pretend good news. We want stuff that's based in reality. Well, Jesus begins his preaching ministry here as it's recorded in Luke 4 with the proclamation of good news. He is speaking in Nazareth, in the, the town in which he had grown up, a place that he had been to the synagogue often on the Sabbath. And during those times in the synagogue, the rabbi would stand and would read from a portion of the scriptures, of course, from the Old Testament, and then would sit down and teach, would exposit that passage of scripture. And so on this particular Sabbath, Jesus is that teacher. And so it's Luke 4, verse 16, and I'll read down through verse 21. And Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed." to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him and he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The first reaction of the crowd was a positive one. They were listening to him, son of the area. He is reading from the scriptures and they are pleased with that. But it immediately begins to turn with that simple comment he makes on it. Today, this is being fulfilled in your hearing. Immediately, the question arises, wait a minute. We know this guy. This is Joseph's son. How is this possibly fulfilled in him? How is he claiming to be the fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy? And so the dialogue ensues. Jesus makes it very clear that he is at the very least a prophet, and he rebukes their rejection of him. It's the point where he speaks of a prophet who is without honor in his hometown, home area, and he rebukes, and the crowd then responds by attempting to kill him. They pursue him to the outskirts of town, and Luke tells us very little about the escape other than there was something supernatural to it and that he walked through the midst of them and he was gone from them, and Jesus went on with ministry. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He's reading from Isaiah 61, and you can turn back there to Isaiah chapter 61. We know from Luke 4 the ultimate fulfillment of this passage that we're reading this morning. We know who it is, whose voice it is intended for ultimately. Jesus said, this is about me. That's why the crowd in Nazareth became so irate. Do you really believe that what Isaiah wrote 
what he gave to our forefathers 700 years earlier, that that's all fulfilled in you, that is what Jesus said. So let me read from Isaiah 61 and read verses 1 through 4 as a starting point. We'll go through 61 and 62 this morning and then into just the first part of 63. The Spirit of the Lord is uh, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Isaiah does not identify the speaker for us, but there are two clues clearly already in verse one when it says that the spirit of the Lord is upon this one who is speaking and he's been anointed by the Lord for ministry. He's been appointed to a task that God has empowered him for. In in chapter 11, one of the passages we looked at previously where God is promising one who will come and will do his work, he also speaks there of one who is anointed by the Lord and the spirit of the Lord, it says, shall rest Upon him. The only other places in the Old Testament where we see that sort of pairing of the anointing, God um, setting someone apart for a particular ministry, and the coming of the Spirit upon that person, the only other two places are Saul and then later David as kings of Israel. And so there is something significant that is happening at this point. This one who is proclaiming this, this coming is tied to some kind of kingly service. So this proclamation of bringing good news to the poor and freeing captives and those who are oppressed and given strength to those who are faint is coming from one who will rule, who will bring the glory of God to the presence of his people and and bring them strength and release, who will establish them in righteousness. So Isaiah is clearly, we now know from our our walk through this book, is clearly now recording for us the, the servant the, the one who we've seen in particular in chapter 53, but throughout these latter chapters where we have seen this one identified servant who is God's anointed one, who will come and give himself on behalf of his people, who we know as the Messiah and who is identified, of course, in Luke's gospel as Jesus. Jesus comes with good news and Isaiah is is prophesying of that good news. And so what I want us to see as we walk through this passage this morning is just five different ways this is good news, five different groups of people for whom this is good news as he is proclaiming this. And we'll start with, it is good news for those who are enslaved. When he says in verse one that it is good news for the poor, he's not simply speaking of economic means at this point, people who are lacking wealth. The word, Hebrew word for poor is the idea of afflicted. So it might in- include poverty, but it would go beyond that um, to those who are oppressed, those who are um, brokenhearted as he describes them here, as captives, as imprisoned. It is good news for all who are trapped and oppressed. Now, we immediately sort of see a category of people there, and that may be appropriate, those who have suffered injustice, those who've suffered at the hands of another's evil, but it's important that the good news is more than that. Because if you remember when the angel came to the shepherds on the night when Jesus was born, she says, behold, I bring you tidings of good news that will be for 
all the people. This is good news. This gospel is for all people, and it is because it is a good news of freedom and liberty and release and rescue to all people. And the reason for that is all people enter life in the grip of sin. All people are under the curse of sin and are facing death for sin. And Jesus makes this clear over and over again in ministry. In John chapter 8, as he's speaking to a, a crowd, he says in John 8, 32, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we're offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus said, truly I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Slave is in bondage to a master, and the Bible says we are all sinners, therefore we are all enslaved to the power of sin. We all enter life by nature as those who are opposed to God, who are given to breaking God's law, both in action and word and in thought, in all of those different ways. We exemplify the fact that our nature is hostile to him because we are under the effects of sin. It is universal. Uh, sin affects the, the, the first stories on the local news every night. It is, it is some aspect of sin that you are seeing unfold every night on the news. Uh, sin's temptations are present everywhere. Sin is celebrated in every form of media. The power of sin is something you're aware of every time you say or do something, and even as you're saying it, you realize you're going to regret this. And in a, in, in a matter of minutes, I'm going to begin to feel guilt and shame because I shouldn't have done this or I shouldn't have said this. And, and you are well aware of the power of sin when you do things that you ultimately know you'll feel ashamed of. Sin is a powerful master, and you and I cannot escape its grip apart from the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, apart from what is being proclaimed here in Isaiah and lived out in Christ. If you remember when John the Baptist announces the arrival of Jesus Christ, he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away what? The sin of, of the world. He, he has come because of sin and sin's hold. When Jesus established the Lord's Supper, he took the cup with his disciples and he said, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Again, the issue that he has come for is because we are in the grip of sin and he has come to bring forgiveness and to set us free. When Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says, I, I, I delivered to you that which was of first importance, that Christ died according to the scriptures for what? That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he then rose. Galatians 1.4 says, Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. And finally, Peter, 1 Peter 3.18, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, made alive in the spirit. This is the good news. It is the good news of the gospel of setting us free from the bondage to sin and death. It is good news of rescue. It, it, it is to those who are otherwise enslaved by the rule of sin, it is a proclamation that you can be set free from this because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Those who see their helpless state, those who humbly cry out to the Lord and who, who turn to him find freedom. Jesus brings good news for those enslaved. Secondly, he brings good news for those who mourn you see it in verses 2 and 3 where it speaks several times of mourning. 
And it says that this good news that's being proclaimed is a comfort to all who mourn. And he says, it describes it as the oil of gladness instead of mourning. There are lots of different ways that people respond to their own sin. Uh, some embrace it and say, that's part of my identity. That's who I am. That's what I do. Many blame shift their sin. It's your fault. It's the circumstances fault. It's whatever situation I've put in. It's not mine. It's because of, of who brought me up. It's whatever. That's the cause for my sin. Growing number just don't get preoccupied with the idea of sin because they reject the notion of a creator God who has established his law and said, you must obey me. And if you break my law, then you are sinning. Then you are sinning against me. And, and so many in our culture just despise the idea of a creator God and his law. And therefore for them, sin is just a category that's reserved for the really evil criminals, the ones who do the really bad stuff that we find reprehensible. And, and, and sin could also be if you impinge on my own sense of lawlessness and pleasure. That, that's probably sin too, because you're interfering with my life. Those for whom Jesus brings this good news see their own sin and they mourn it. They grieve it. That's when scripture speaks here of this mourning and this grieving. They're not grieving their circumstances. They're grieving the fact that they, they see this hopeless state that they are in. They see this bondage they are in and they are pleading for help because there's, there's nothing more they can do. They can't lift themselves from out of these circumstances. They can't change things and, and they can't escape and it's heartbreaking. And they long for something better, something that would remove the guilt and the shame and give to them life and forgiveness and hope. Jesus came for those who mourn. Jesus came for those humbled by the weight of their own sin, those who cry out for help. And the beauty of the passage is he comes not simply to alleviate the guilt and shame, but as he describes here in Isaiah, the good news is not only does he remove, but then he replaces. He replaces the mourning with gladness. He replaces this, this sense of desolation and this weakness. He describes being faint of spirit as, as being one who is established like a tree, like firmly in the ground. He replaces ashes for beauty and despair for praise and our worst for his best. It is what Jesus described in John 10 when he said, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that they might have abundant life, life in that which is abundant. Jesus brings more than we can imagine, more than we know even to ask for, because Jesus Christ transforms. And the, the picture in Isaiah particularly when you look at verse four and it talks about the ancient ruins and the devastation that's around them, that the people here are surrounded by devastation. The walls of their city have been torn down. There's much that needs repair, but yet in their very soul, they have been given joy. They still have gladness because of the good news that is being proclaimed to them, that despite their circumstances, the favor of the Lord is upon them and, and, and their grief for their sin has been met by one who forgives and gives life. Verse seven says, instead of your, this is Isaiah 61, seven, instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. By his gospel, Jesus Christ not only takes the, the shame for sin and the guilt of sin and removes it, but he replaces it with an overflowing joy. Enslavement was in the past, and those who are in Christ have been set free. 
We saw in John 8 where, where Jesus is having that encounter with the Jews and, and speaks of the truth setting them free and them arguing about that. And in fact, in John 8, he goes on to say, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. If Jesus Christ brings this freedom, if you respond to your sin and, and you are mourning your sin, then, then know that Jesus Christ has come to replace your mourning with gladness. Next, Jesus brings good news for those who are desolate. Isaiah 61 goes on, and it speaks of God's saving covenant with his people. And, and it goes on to describe how he makes them to be his own, so that, as we've seen this theme repeatedly in Isaiah, so that they would ultimately fulfill what has been the calling of God's people all along, which is to reflect the righteousness of God, to, to glorify him and these things that we are called to. And, and what he begins to do in Isaiah 61 is to paint a picture of God's union with his people that replaces our, our separation from him, our desolation, our aloneness. And he begins to portray that as the servant speaks again at the end of chapter 61. If you pick up with me in verse 10, the servant now speaking one more time says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations." There's a line of description here that he's going to carry through into chapter 62 that's really important for us to see. And it's this bride and groom illustration that he begins to use here. And, and the reason that we, we look at verse 10 and at first it seems like, well, is this the servant speaking? Because he's praising Yahweh for clothing him in garments of salvation and, and robe of righteousness. And yet what he also says here is he is like a bridegroom who has been dressed in these garments and prepared for this. This is the servant, the, the, the anointed one, the Messiah now, who is speaking, and he is describing how Yahweh has dressed him in garments of salvation and righteousness. And what we're going to see as we continue to read on here is the servant is dressed this way in order that he will bring righteousness and salvation to his bride. He is, he is about to take what is his, these garments, and he is about to give that to his bride and transform her. This, this flows right out of the, the joy for mourning, the, the joyousness that is a theme in this passage. There's no event that, that's more joyful for us than to gather for a wedding. We, we gather for the celebration of a husband and a wife who are joining together in marriage, and few events produce more joy. And Jesus here is prepared as that groom now to come to his bride to give to her righteousness and salvation. And the picture continues into chapter 62. I'm going to pick up in verse 3. And the servant now is describing the bride when he says, You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called my delight is in her and your land married for the Lord delights in you and your land shall be married, restored, if you will. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. 
Picture that moment at the start of every wedding ceremony when the groom is standing in the front and he's nervously anticipating that moment when the doors in the back of the room open. And when they open, what's there? It's the, the beautiful bride. She is adorned and, and it's a joy to, to see their faces as they catch each other's eye and to hear the little, as he sees her when the doors open, knows that this is his bride. At the wedding of, of two people who believe in Jesus Christ, we are always proclaiming this, what you are seeing here, this is a depiction of Christ and his church. This is a picture, Ephesians says, that, that what you would see in this joining of this man and this woman is Christ, the groom, coming for his bride, the church, the body of believers. Now, in every wedding that you and I have attended, the groom likely did not make the bride more beautiful. The groom did not do the bride's hair or her nails or her makeup, thankfully, right, ladies? <laughs> But this is different because what the Bible describes here is the bride before the groom is desolate. The, the, the biblical picture often of those who are apart from Christ is that we are separated. We are cast out. And when it speaks of God bringing Israel to himself, even describes it as an, as an infant girl who has been cast out and is covered in dirt. And, and the Lord comes and, and takes her to himself and cleans her up. And makes her his. Imagine that the day on which you first met the person that you married or will first meet the person that you marry. Imagine that that day was your very worst day. You looked the worst and felt the worst that you could possibly feel. Imagine if that was the day and oh, you'd be ashamed and, 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 and feel terrible. Now magnify that. Because that's what, what Scripture is trying to help us see, that there was nothing about that bride intrinsically that drew her to Christ. She was made in the image of God, but nothing that, that made her particularly appealing. Rather, it was his love set on her that said, I choose you. I draw you to myself. I make you to be my bride. I am showing you grace. He takes her and he gives her life and makes her beautiful. And then he is zealous to grow her in purity, to grow her in holiness. That, again, is the picture in Ephesians of the, the husband-wife relationship, why the husband is called to have this nurturing, loving, discipling relationship, Amen. because it's as Christ to the church. I want to present her spotless before the world. And that's the nature of this union that the groom enters into with the bride. It is for her good. It is for her blessing. It is so that the righteousness of the Lord might shine through her. It is for the glorious rule of the sovereign king to be seen in her submission to him. So that everyone watching this wedding would know that that bride who was once lost and desolate and hopeless, she is now made to be the one that he loves with an everlasting love and he delights in her. He loves her and she is beautiful. You who was called desolate, are now called the Lord's delight. Imagine that. Jesus brings us into union with himself and makes us his own and blesses us so that others would see his delight in us, so that they would see his joy even in us. And so the, the audience watching this wedding sees that moment when the doors open and they see the, the groom's face as the bride enters. 
and they see the happiness, the delight on his face. But the irony about this is that as he delights to see the beauty of the bride, he is the one who has given life to the bride. He is the one who has washed her clean from sin. He is the one who has imparted his righteousness to her and and has made her beautiful and he takes her to himself. That is good news. That is good news, amen? All right, let me read on, verse six. On your walls, O Jerusalem, this is Isaiah 62, 6. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen all the day and all the night. They shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. The Lord has sworn by his right hand and by his mighty arm, I will not again give your grain to be food for your enemies and foreigners shall not drink your wine for which you have labored. But those who garner it shall eat it And praise the Lord, and those who gather it shall drink it in the courts of my sanctuary. The good news continues, and this is good news for those who are weak in faith. Those who sometimes struggle with discouragement, who struggle to believe the Lord's promises, who read these things and struggle to to know that this is true. Have Have you ever worried, right? We're all there. Have you ever panicked? Have you ever been fearful? Have you ever just seemed overwhelmed by circumstances and struggled to fully believe that God's grace can be sufficient even in this circumstance. You you may have listened to this whole piece about the bride and the groom and you're thinking, I don't see how I fit there. I, I don't see how God could ever look at me and delight in me when all I see is my sin. I, I, I just don't see that this purifying and delighting. I don't see how God can see me that way. Well, here's what's going on in, in verses six through nine. It describes watchmen on the walls. Commentators differ. Are these prophets? Are these angels? We don't know. We don't know because that's really not the main point. The point is there are watchmen on the walls. And the scene is this. This is a, a king who has sworn to do things for his people. This king has sworn to establish his nation. In this case, it it even describes how the king has sworn to establish Jerusalem, that that he will establish it and and make it a praise in all the earth. And so what, what it's describing here is this king is saying, I will do this. And he is telling those in his court who are responsible to record these things, write this down and hold me to this. You keep me in remembrance of these things. These very things that I am promising to you, you keep them in remembrance and you you can be sure that I do them. You will follow up to see that these promises are kept. What God is doing here is he is speaking to people who are struggling, who are weak in faith and struggling to believe all his good news and and saying, "Can, can I really believe this? Can I really believe that God's in control as I'm surrounded by the circumstances of my life? Can I really trust that God means good in this for me, that he's at work in this? To which the Lord says, I am posting watchmen. Set them up. Write this down and remember it and hold me to it because I will keep my promises. Because what I assure you of, I will do. If you are weak in faith, know that this good news is filled with promise. And so that when you are tempted to ask, where is the Lord and is he in control? And can I be sure that, that this is his will? The Lord says, I have sworn by my character and my power that my promises are to be believed because I will do them. I will fulfill them and you can bring them to remembrance. No enemy, no evil man, 
No strong government, no supernatural power, not even Satan himself will steal the blessings and provisions God has for his people. That's why he says, what you plant, you will, you will eat of. You will take of the things that you are given. You will enjoy these things. God's people will gather all that he has for them, and they will drink in the blessings that he has for them. And he is saying, have certainty about this. Trust me in this. Hold me to this, if you will. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a promise. Romans 8 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. A couple weeks from today, Pastor Stewart's going to start us off in a study in Romans chapter 8, just walking through that glorious chapter. And if you walk toward the end of that chapter, what it, 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 it reminds us of there is that those whom God in eternity past has chosen for himself, he has predestined, he has called to be his own, he has justified, that is made to stand before him with the righteousness of Christ. And then it says, and those he has justified, he has also glorified. And he is using past tense language to say that even now, I see you as this. I see you as complete and the fulfillment of my work in you is sure. God's promises are secure. Hebrews 6 verse 17 says, So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purposes, he guaranteed it with an oath. So you've got his unchangeable character, that's one, and you've got his promise, his oath, that's two. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We have the unchanging character of God and the promises of God, his covenant to us to save a people for himself on the basis of the death and resurrection of his son to assure us that God cannot lie. And so when our Savior ascended into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God the Father, his work of salvation was perfect and complete. And if you are trusting in Jesus Christ as your Savior, then Christ's promises and his presence at the right hand of the Father is like an anchor for you. You are tethered to heaven. You are tethered to him. And his finished work in his place in heaven should be a comfort for your soul. And so he's speaking with this good news to those who are weak in faith. And saying, you have reason to trust me. My promises will not fail. All right, verse 10. And this is the first time now in, in any of this passage that we're seeing commands. So now this is instructions to the people. These are imperative verbs. And they speak now to the people who have been taking all this in, to us, to, to the people of God, as we've heard all of this good news. Verse 10. Go through, go through the gates. Prepare the way for the people. Build up, build up the highway, clear it of stones. Lift up a signal over all the peoples. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you shall be called sought out city, not forsaken. God has good news for the enslaved, good news for those who mourn, good news for those who are desolate, good news for those who are weak in faith, and finally, good news for those who are weak in power, just flat out weak, all right, on this last one. In this final part of chapter 62, he's turning his attention now to the people of God. 
You've heard all of these things. You've responded now to the good news. And so now he gives a series of commands. Now you are to go. God, we've seen already throughout these chapters, saw it in, in last week's chapter, in particular in chapter 60, God is saving people. God is drawing people to himself. And so now to you who have received these promises and who have been assured that your God will keep these promises, he says, you now go. Go and help build the highway. Go and help clear the path. Go and be a light that shines in the darkness. Go be a lamp. Go out and speak these things. Go out, stand up. This, this, should, this should ring back to Isaiah 60, verse 1. Stand up, arise, and display the glory of God. Shine. Go out from here and be the, be the vessels that, that I've designed you to be. Be the bride that I have called you to be and call others to me. Call them to, to join in this celebration. Call them to receive this good news. This, this, this is, this is a, a command now to the bride, to God's people, to go to those who are trapped in sin and grieving their shame and, and desolate and, and who desperately need a message of good news and hope. And he's charging now his people. Go and help prepare the way. Help take the obstacles out of the way. And show, just as John did when he said, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You now go. The Lord does not call his people to obedience like this. All of these commands there in verse 10, go, prepare, build, build up, lift up, doesn't give us these commands to, to frustrate us. Doesn't give us those commands and know that we are entirely inadequate to do these things. The gospel speaks of his power to work in and through us. Amen. And so with the, the commands to obey comes the power of the gospel to live it out and be used by God to draw others to him. Amen. And, and, and we must do this because we already have seen the good news of Jesus Christ is not merely some really good philosophy that's right up there with a lot of other belief systems and a lot of other philosophies that are meant to make people happy. It's not just some, some companion sort of philosophy that says, here's, here's ways to self-actualize and to live a good life and be satisfied. The Bible is explicit that the author of this good news is your creator. And you stand accountable before him, but it's your creator who knows your whole being who has authored this good news, and there is none like it. Therefore, he says to his people, there is no other message of hope and praise. This, this news is urgent. Proclaim it. You and I understand that what makes the good news of the gospel so incredibly good is that we, we know what the bad news is. It, we, we must understand our state apart from the good news of Christ for the good news to, to be as glorious as it is. We must, people must understand what it is to be in the grip of sin and those who do not trust in Jesus Christ to deliver them and forgive them. That condition is dreadful and eternal and final at God's judgment. And I want to just move into the first few verses of Isaiah 63. And, and the scene turns dramatically with verse 1. Who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments from Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel, 
marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. We know who this is now. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath held, upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. The servant has spoken. The Messiah is declaring this. There is good news for those who are enslaved by sin and desolate and alone. Turn to Jesus and you will be saved. But if you do not, if you remain in rebellion against him, if you refuse and you turn from his gospel, if you do not turn to Jesus for his merciful forgiveness, then you will, without question, face the judgment of God. The God who is powerful to save is also a God of wrath to those who break his law and do not obey his word. In verse 1, he cites Edom as the place from which the servant is coming. Edom in the Old Testament is the perennial enemy of the Jewish people, going back to the, the descendants of Esau. So you have Jacob, the line of the, the Jewish people, and you have Esau and the Edomites who follow. And Edom becomes just a thorn in, in the Jewish people's flesh to the degree that when they are brought, the Hebrews are brought out of captivity, led by Moses out of captivity in Egypt, and they want to pass through the land of their brother Edom. They are told, nope, you must go all the way around. We, we don't want you walking through here. And they, 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 the hostility begins. It carries through under the reign of King Saul and David. Solomon, it speaks of one of his greatest adversaries being a ruler in Edom. And so it goes on and on. Evil. Edom was a nation that was known for evil and rebellion against God from its infancy. And so Isaiah uses Edom to draw the picture. As you look out from the walls, you see somebody coming from the direction. It looks like a warrior coming from the direction of Edom. And at first glance, he appears to be dressed in this shimmering garment. This lone warrior just seems to be in this, this garment that's this beautiful shade of crimson until he starts drawing closer. And then you begin to look at his garment and, and they begin to ask, why, why is your garment like this? Were you treading out in the wine press? Were you treading grapes? Because your, your garment seems to be stained in color. And he says, I have been treading in the wine press, but it's not what you think. In his holy wrath against sin, the, the servant has poured out God's judgment on those who rebel against him. You simply need to look in the book of Revelation and you will see this imagery as clear as can be. The, the lion, Jesus, coming in his wrath against those who refuse to worship the creator, who will not bow down to God, who set out to live for themselves, who will not humble themselves, who reject his gospel. And the picture that he portrays here is him coming in judgment, him coming to tread out the winepress in judgment against them. Blood will be shed and that is the cost for sin. And that's why, the, that's why the good news of Jesus Christ, that's why the gospel is so amazing and why it's so wonderful. Because we all live against this backdrop. The holy and righteous judgment of God is real. The idea that 
Everybody somehow gets to paradise, whether they trusted in Jesus Christ or not, whether they believe in Jesus Christ or not, because God's just going to let them all in anyway, and there is no suffering after this life, is, is crushed in the wine press of Isaiah 63. The servant is saying, I have done the work of judgment. I have carried out God's justice. It is a horrible picture, but it is a picture that speaks to the urgency of Amen. go, go build. Go remove the obstacles. Go be a lamp because there's good news that you and I have. We've seen it time and time again in Isaiah. Those sorts of messages are never God's intended last word. And so I'll just read verse 7, and that'll be the last verse we'll look at this morning. I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us, and the great goodness to the house of Israel that he has granted them according to his compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. God's justice demands punishment for those who reject his good news. But know this, he is a merciful God. Slow to anger and abounding in love, he is compassionate and he is urging you, and if you are not trusting in Jesus Christ, then I am pleading with you this morning, he is urging you to turn to him to believe that Jesus Christ lived a perfect life, that he died on the cross for your sins and rose again to give life, and that if you will simply trust in Jesus Christ, if you will turn from your hopelessness and desolation and turn to Jesus and say, forgive me, you died for my sins, save me, you can embrace this good news today. The, the warrior that we see coming in the blood of those who have rejected him. We don't see that lone warrior with just that image until we've first seen the warrior who comes with his own blood having been shed, having put himself in our place. In the Old Testament, the Jewish high priest would slaughter the animal and scatter the blood around as a symbol of the need to wash away sin with the blood of the lamb or with the blood of the bull or the goat. Sin against a holy God requires a judgment that sheds blood. But in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12, it says Jesus appeared as a high priest. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. The great warrior wore garments that were his own and his own blood was shed. When he was stripped and put on the cross and crucified for us and buried in that tomb, that great warrior suffered so that you and I can have life so that our mourning can be exchanged for gladness, so that our unrighteousness can be dressed in his righteousness. You and I have that from the good news of the gospel, and if you will turn to him and trust him today, he will rescue you, and for we who are trusting in Jesus Christ, his gospel is power to believe his promises and to go forth and be obedient to him and to do the work that he has called us to do. His good news is for us when we are unable to stand, when we are beset with crises and trials, and, and even in those situations, his good news calls us to believe his promises and to know who he is. And even in those moments, by his strength and his grace to stand up and shine forth his glory to the enslaved and the desolate. Amen? Let's pray together. We have read your word, Lord, and have seen both the the joy and the gladness 
the treasure that the good news is that you have proclaimed. It is eternally great good news. It's good news of hope and salvation, of rescue, of rebuilding, of restoration, of replacing shame and guilt with life and righteousness and clean garments. But we have also read in your word of your judgment on sin and the cost of sin. And so I pray this morning that if there's anyone listening here, listening online, who this morning is, is, has not yet turned to Jesus Christ, who has not yet believed in the need for a Savior, I pray for your spirit to take the sword of your word and to pierce their hearts and cause them to see this truth that apart from Christ, we are utterly hopeless. Apart from Christ, there is no life of God flowing through us. And it is only by turning from the ways that one has followed on their own to, to believe in Jesus Christ and to believe that a Savior has come who gave himself in our place for sin, only by trusting in him, that there is not just life, but abundant life and forgiveness of sin and gladness. Lord, would you help this body of believers to take seriously the call, call to build up, to remove the obstacles, to go out, to, to do the work of ministry, to see amongst our neighbors those who are hurting those who are desolate, those who may not even recognize their state, but who need to know of a Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you for the rich good news that we've read this morning. Thank you for seeking to give encouragement to your people when we are struggling in our faith and for reminding us that you are empowering us to do the work of ministry. These things we pray for your sake and for the glory of our son of your son Jesus Christ in his name amen